Have you ever received an extravagant gift? No, I'm not giving out free prizes for my sermon today. But have you ever received something that was just over the top? Where you were completely blown away? To the point where everyone else in the room who is around you or the, the folks standing next to you are just astounded. You're just like, whoa, that was absolutely amazing. I didn't expect that. I didn't see that coming. There was such a movement of extravagance literally moving across every state in the Union, all because of a dead man's wish. Aaron Collins was born in 1982 on June 15th in Lexington, Kentucky. He lived his life quickly, not holding on to many things, always with vigor to have experiences, not possessions. He did not care to have many things, He just wanted to have experiences with different people. He was incredibly sentimental. And the small things that people did for him is what touched him the most. He would not reach his 30th birthday, however. He would pass away due to an incurable illness. But he left something very mysterious in his will for his family. It said this, When you go to a restaurant... Leave an awesome tip. Be extravagant in your generosity. Aaron's brother, Seth, took up the challenge. And in just one month, they raised over $30,000. And so he began going across every state in the Union. One state after another. Going to a restaurant a mom-and-pop restaurant most likely. And he would sit down and eat the meal and then call the waitress over or the waiter over and tell them Aaron's story. Tell them what he said he wanted him to do. And he would give each waiter or waitress a $500 tip. Now, wouldn't that blow you away? Wouldn't that just be something that would astound you? And in case you want to see those moments of astonishment, they're all chronicled on YouTube. All 99 of them. He's hoping to reach 100 soon. Recently, though, he's been going above and beyond that. I'm sorry I missed out on this, but in Richmond, he was here. Not that I want to go into waiting tables or anything, but maybe for that one day I might. But he, he, he steps in there and one of his donors was with him and she doubled the offer. So that young waitress who is seen on YouTube jumping up and down got $1,000 for her tip. Now, you would step back and like, like I did when I read this story and think, that is utterly amazing, that is astounding, that is great what they're doing. And the story I've told you is very compelling. However, the scene that we see here in Mark 14 is nothing short of amazing and makes the story that I just told you of extravagance, of extravagant giving, out of nowhere giving, seem to pale in comparison. It is extravagant. It is over the top. And it is worship. That's what we see in this passage. 
And contrary to Judas and the other disciples who scorned Mary, who, who scolded her, who said this was inappropriate, this was wasteful, what are you thinking? Contrary to those people and their comments, this kind of worship is not out of place. This kind of worship is not inappropriate. This kind of worship is not wasteful. Timberlake, this is expected. This is how true disciples live. Forsaking all to follow Jesus. Pouring out their love. Giving God their lives in devotion. These are some of the questions I ask myself. I love to ask myself questions. I'm going to pass them on to you. Stephen, church at Timberlake, what are you chasing this morning? We are all running after something. I know you're seated comfortably in these chairs, but you're running. You're pursuing. You're grasping after. What is that thing? Because the question is not, do you worship? The question is, what are you worshiping? Every single person who's born into this world who breathes shortly thereafter, is a worshiper. Those of you that have young children, I do not have to convince you that your child is a worshiper of themselves. <laughs> and they want you to worship, and they want you to join them in their worship. And you know, a lot of us grow up and we continue to have that, to have that tendency. What is that for you? What are you chasing? Because... Whatever we pursue, whatever you worship as supreme, is what you will give extravagant worship to. It's what you give your time generously to, extravagantly to. It's, it's whatever you think will give you the most happiness. It is the greatest satisfaction in your mind with the ultimate payout. It's the what's in it for me type of mindset. It could be a person, it could be a thing, it could be a position, it could be a vacation spot, it could be an idea, it could be a lifetime Netflix subscription, it could be football season, which is a long time away, or basketball season, or March Madness, whatever it is, whatever you think that you look forward to that just, has, just grabs you by the collar and says, you're mine. What is it, what is it that you're pursuing? Maybe it is just your version or your definition of the good life. Stephen, Timberlake, be careful. Be very careful because what you are chasing is what you worship and what you worship owns you. Owns me. My prayer for us this morning is that we would leave this place with an all-consuming passion the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would give our lives and a lifetime of devotion that will lead to an eternity of worship to Him. Let's look at our text. Mark 14. As you read the first two verses, I want to just draw your attention to something as a way of background. Mark is very good at giving us a sandwich method of how he tells the narrative of Jesus' life. But we see here, first of all, the sandwich begins, the, the layer, the, the top layer of the sandwich, the 
first piece of bread is verses two, 1 and 2. And that actually takes place on Wednesday before Jesus is crucified. We are still two days away from the Feast of Passover. Get this. The last Passover. We get a little view. We get the curtain is pulled back for us and we get to see what was really happening behind the scenes. Who are the people that are scheming? Who are the people that are plotting all to destroy Jesus? They were going to try to seize Him by stealth, in secret. Treachery is what they're planning. All they need is an inside man. And we all know who that inside man is. He's in this passage too. They're trying to seize Him. And not just seize Him and shut Him up, but they want to kill Him. Before it was, we need to destroy this man's testimony. We need to destroy his credibility. We need to somehow stop him. Now it's, he needs to die. As we know, the Passover is also mentioned in these verses. It signified the time when Israel be delivered, was delivered from Egypt's slavery. In that defining moment, the firstborn had to die unless the blood of a spotless lamb was spilled instead. And get this, church. The firstborn of the dead is about to die. And he's also the spotless lamb. Jesus Christ is about to do it for us, for our redemption. Be the Passover sacrifice. This was also a huge time of celebration. And so it was very difficult for the chief priests to navigate how are we going to do this? How are we going to get Christ, Jesus, to get him in a secret place and kill him? But it is very clear in these first two verses, that Jesus is not walking away from danger. He's going into it. And He's going deep into it. But it will mean our redemption in the end. The meat of the sandwich. Okay, I know some of you are already getting hungry. Now, the meat of the sandwich, the main story of the passage, is in verses 3 through 9. Okay? This takes place on Saturday before this Wednesday that's being described for us in verses 1 and 2. So don't get confused. It's just a flashback. You've seen movies and on TV and stuff where, you know, where the, the screen kind of goes a little bit weird and then it's like now we're back a few days earlier or a few years earlier. Same thing here. Mark is taking us back. Why? Why would he go in the past to tell us the story? Well, you know, there is no verse of Scripture that's ever wasted, that's ever randomly put there. This is to tell the story, to lead us into what we're going to read next, or what you would read next if you were to continue, and that is the Lord's Supper. We also find this parallel passage in John 12, and that's where I get the, the, the exact documentation that this is six days before Jesus will be crucified, therefore it is on Saturday evening. And what we see here is that Jesus, in verse 3, is in Bethany, and he's at the home of someone. He is at the home of Simon the leper. Many people were named Simon. Think of the name John, or Bob, or something like that. Something that is very common in our culture. And so they wanted to identify who this Simon was. There are so many Simons mentioned in Scripture alone, let alone the culture at that time. 
Now, he's not, he doesn't have leprosy now. We know that. Why? Because lepers would be cast out of the city. So he's been healed. And my opinion on this is that he was healed by no one other than, than Jesus. If you read, go even deeper into John 12, you find something else. This is also the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So this could either be Martha's husband. It could be Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' father. We don't know. But he's in Bethany, and he's been invited to a feast, to a dinner. Keep in mind, this is right after John 11. What happened in John 11? A dead man came out of a tomb. That's also about to happen in a few chapters. But this man was called out by Christ. His name, Lazarus. This is a celebration. This is a celebration of the one who is the resurrection and the life. And this has been calculated. This has been planned. Everything that follows in verses 3 through 9 has been calculated and planned by the family to exalt the resurrection and the life, to exalt, to pour out the devotion and love that is due to their Messiah. So let's get into this. Let's get into the text here. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she breaks the vial and pours it on his head. Let's just stop there. First of all, what we see here love poured out lavishly for the master. This is scene number one. Scene two will be the response. Scene one is this love that is poured out, broken and spilled out for the Master. Now, like I said, you can look over in John 12, and for sake of time, you don't have to turn there, but I want you to hear Jesus, six days before the Passover, verse 1, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. They made him supper there. Martha was serving as usual. Lazarus is one of those reclining at the table. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume. Matthew calls it very precious perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Here she's also, Marcus also given the perspective that she anointed his head with this perfume. What's so significant about this? Mary's alabaster vial perfume would have been equivalent to one year's worth of wages. Now we're going off of Judas's description here. So unless Judas is not exaggerating, this would have been the equivalent in our day and age to about $26,000. Now that's at minimum wage, $7.25. It's always going up, right? 12 hours a day, not taking the taxes out. This is how much it would have rendered. $26,000. Now the median income here in Lynchburg is much more than that. But even our day and age, can you imagine taking a year's worth of your wages? For one thing, even having that saved would be an accomplishment, one, for one thing. But even to have that in some form of an heirloom or some, or some you know, prize possession that's worth that much 
and you just waste it. Waste it on someone's feet. This is the scene that we see here. This is the scene where all of this takes place. Now, notice this is not the same woman in Luke 7, Mary Magdalene, who is the sinner, who is the you know, who is pouring out the, the ointment on, on Jesus' feet. Ironically, it's also take that, that, that picture is also seen for us at Simon the Pharisee's house, just to confuse us, okay? But that's not who this is. This is Mary, the brother, I mean the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. And pouring on the perfume would, be in a, would have been a routine kind of function. It was a precursor to the modern deodorant that we all appreciate nowadays. It was a common courtesy. It was in the world of heat and perspiration, this kind, that kind of access of bathing in perfumes would not have been as, as readily available. And so one of the things that you would get when you would come through the door would be a drop of this perfume. It was in an alabaster flask, about 11 ounces of this stuff. It would have been used over a period of years and years and years. Just one drop would be enough. You say, how do you know that? Because it's pure nard. This is a plant that grows in, in India. This is, this is undiluted perfume. This is not eau de toilette okay, perfume or cologne. This is undiluted. This is pure. This is thick. This is one little drop and everyone smells it. And what does she do? What does she do with this prized possession? In the midst of everyone who was there for this feast, the disciples, the family, she dumps it all. She breaks open the flask. She could have done it little by little. She didn't have to break it. There was no reason to break the flask. She still could have gotten the ointment out of there. But instead, it's just like, I need to do this now. I want to dump it all now. I just want it all to go on Jesus. Thinking of anything she could do to give to Him that would be worthy or even begin to describe how worthy He was in her eyes. Here in this passage, Mary pours out her undivided, undiluted, and all-consuming love that she has for Jesus. This is not different, though, from Mary's life. What do we know about her? How does she normally operate? As Martha is serving the family, remember this in the book of Luke? Martha's busy setting the table, getting all the, the drinks ready, getting all the food ready. Where's Mary? I can't get her to do anything. I can't get her to help me. Jesus, Tell her to come over here. What is she doing? Where do we find her? Where is she sitting? She is sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on every single word, which is more than the disciples could say. Because Mary and her family seem to be the only people in the room in this passage that get it. That get who Jesus is, His value. Everyone else thinks this is ridiculous. Mary thinks this is expected. This is the worship that's due Him. I want to sit at His feet. I want to give Him my undivided, undiluted attention. I want to hang on every single word. 
But that was before her brother died. That was before. Listen, this is before she sees her brother walk out of the grave. So how much more extravagant now is her worship toward the Lord after He has done such an amazing thing in their family? And as she continues to ratchet up her affection, the disciples' affection is only concerning themselves, specifically Judas. Before we jump into the response, though, that we've already been alluding to, Let's see what's going on here. Mary is declaring that nothing matters more to her than Jesus. Perhaps the family pooled their savings to buy this gift. Perhaps it was a hugely valuable heirloom or some dowry that was given to Mary that, or something that may have been passed down for years. But now the time has come. Now is the appropriate time to pour it out because nothing, she can't think of any other occasion where this would be more useful, where this would be better than now. She can't think of any time after this moment where this would be more useful. And the fragrance would dominate the entire room just like the one whom she's pouring it upon. The one who dominates this world. The one who is preeminent. The fragrance fills the room just like the Creator God who is sitting at the, at the table. Whose, earth, whose splendor fills the heavens, as the Old Testament tells us. Whose majesty and glory is declared throughout every solar system in the universe. And then she takes her hair, which for us in our context is still seen as a woman's glory. Something that would be very precious to her. And she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. She is, not, she is not sparing any expense to this. She doesn't care how it looks. She doesn't care how ridiculous it makes her appear before these men. She doesn't care how many times they scold her, how many times they ridicule her. She is going to pour out her love for her Master. But we can even be more specific. There's a finer point to this story. The worth of Jesus and the perfection of Jesus. Mary is teaching us that if Christ isn't everything to you, then He is nothing to you. There's a John Piper quote that I want to draw your attention to because I think this is, this is the finer point I want to draw your attention to because as you seek to desire Christ in this way, as you seek to have a burning passion in your soul to give extravagantly to Jesus, as you, as you look within yourself to say, do I have this kind of commitment like Mary did? To give lavishly. To give without any thought of what this cost me because of what Jesus is doing and about to do for her. There's no comparison. He says this, It is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of His followers match. Catch that? The worth of Jesus infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy, and then this infinite love just pours out. When the value of His perfections and the intensity of our affections 
correspond. Do you desire Christ in this way? It was God who lavished His love by killing His Son in your place. Will you then live your life in stinginess and in gratitude, only giving and desiring God when it's comfortable and convenient to do so? You say, well, I have a passion. I have a passion for missions. I have a passion for the poor. I have a passion to exercise my spiritual gifts within the context of the local church. I have a passion for evangelism. I have a passion for discipleship. I have a passion for community within this church, for people to serve one another. I have a passion for this. But but do you have a passion for God? That's where it starts. If you don't have a passion for God, then what is your passion for missions? Where is it coming from? And the question that I find myself is not, do I agree with that or am I challenged? But is that a reality in my life? The value of God's perfections, Christ's perfections, and the intensity of our affections must correspond. They must match. That's why this extravagant display of love is not something to be sneered at or scoffed at or looked at as radical or weird or out of place. It's expected. Because Christ is worthy. Number two. Scene two. Love poured out recklessly for money. For things. The response is interesting here. Some were so indignant that they remarked to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? Verse four. And then the statement is this, for this perfume may have been sold for over 300 denarii, the money given to the poor, and they scolded her. John 12 gives us a clue to who this spokesman was. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, isn't it so kind of God to put that in there, even in the midst of all that Judas did, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? So who's saying this? Judas. Now he said this, parentheses, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. As he carried the money box, the money bag for the disciples, And he used to pilfer. He used to what? Steal from the money that was put into it. So get this. Who gets the money if Mary sells that for a year's worth of wages? Who gets to get the 25,000? The poor or Judas? See, this is also a scene of love. This is a scene of extravagance. This is a scene where, of sacrificial love. But it's not directed at Jesus. It's directed at money. As you know, Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve. He, his name is actually quite, in, quite incredible. 
His name means Jehovah leads or the one who is to be praised. His last name is very noble as well. It means he's from the village of Kerioth, 23 miles south of Jerusalem. He is the only non-Galilean among the disciples. Why would he join this group of Galilean fishermen and tax collectors and zealots? Why would he join this crew? He joined joined this group for selfish, proud, and materialistic reasons. As John MacArthur says, he wanted goods and he wanted glory. That's all Judas thought about. Stuff, power. It's interesting how those go together, even in our culture. But as he spends time with Jesus looking for that opportunity where Jesus is going to give it to the Romans, where he's going to set up this kingdom he keeps talking about, where he can perform all these miracles, where we can be rich, we can be powerful, nothing can stop us. That dream that Judas has has slowly been diminished. That dream of his own kingdom of goods and glory, is beginning to collapse. Remember, Jesus in Mark 8 is doing what? Grabbing his disciples together and saying, the Son of Man is going to die. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to give my life. They're going to kill me, guys. And they're over talking about, um, who's going to sit on the right and left of your, uh, of your throne, Jesus? Okay, let's do it again. Mark 9. Same exact terminology. I'm going to be tortured, rejected by the chief priests and the elders. They're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. And again, they're arguing. Or they're silent. Not understanding. Mark 10, he does it again. And they're still arguing about who is going to be the greatest. But now... Things are moving very quickly. And Judas wants to take the bull by the horns here and he wants to do anything he can to push Jesus into this kingdom dream of his. And he's got a plan. And we know, and I found this interesting, he does not go out on on Thursday night after after the Last Supper and plan. The plan happens on Saturday. All week long, he has this plan. Isn't it interesting that Jesus overturns the money changers in the presence of Judas and says, you have taken this house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. Get the money out of here. I bet that just made Judas go wild. I bet that just made him want to kill Jesus right there. Because it hit at the very nerve that drove Judas. He wanted out. If Jesus wasn't going to be this kingdom bringer that he he thought he was going to be, he wanted compensation. He didn't want a cross. He wanted a kingdom. He looks at the three years he had with Jesus as a waste. And he would take off to the chief priest in order to betray him. In contrast to Mary's love for the Master, 
Judas pours out his devotion for money. Judas speaks up with an unbelievable disregard for what Mary has done. Shows us two things here. How expensive the ointment really was and how detrimental it is when our hearts don't match up to the worth of Jesus. Judas is paving the way for his own suicide right here. Judas' scheme of values was so vastly different than Mary's. Here she is giving $26,000 for Jesus. In a few days, Judas is going to sell him for $2,000. We see what's in Judas' heart. Mary's heart was full of wonder and thankfulness and joy, lavish demonstrations of affection. Judas' heart felt none of this. He valued money more than he valued Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. Judas loved money. Judas' heart contradicted the treasure that Jesus is. But look at what Judas and Jesus do here. It's, it's very... This happens in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. Judas is always met with loving correction and rebuke from Jesus. Compassion. He could have just written Judas off. But he speaks directly to him. Number one, he says, leave her alone because she's done a good work for me. She's done something beautiful. Can't you see it, Judas? This is a good work. This is a worthwhile thing that she is doing. No, Mary's work was not beautiful because it was practical. All of us practical utilitarian folks out here, we go, you're telling me you're going to dish all of that out in one time? My children do this on a regular basis. You know, with soap in the bathtub. They just all they just want it all to be out, you know? The more bubbles the better. I mean, it's just that this just this pouring out. And a lot of us we think, boy, that man, that could have been you could have used that for for something else. But think of this. When you when that rises up in your heart, what is what is the something else that this could have been used for? Who is the other person this could have been used for more? See, when you recognize who she poured out the ointment upon, you realize this was not even enough. Eleven ounces was far too little for what Jesus deserves. It was simply done for Jesus and to Jesus with no thought of whether it was sensible. But you know what? Jesus has a lot of strange strange things in his treasury, doesn't he? Widows, pennies, cups of water, Broken alabaster vases. She gave all that she had. These Pharisees, they gave out of their surplus. They gave out of their bonuses. This lady gave everything and puts it in the offering. Widow's might. A penny. Not even a penny in our, in our context. But it meant something to the Lord. You give a cup of cold water in my name, he says. You know, you've done it for me. 
I, value, I put high value on that. Broken alabaster vases, same thing. You see, because to know Christ, to see Christ, to hear Christ, to fellowship with Christ is infinitely valuable. What Jesus is saying here is, the Word was made flesh and is dwelling among you. And this season of my presence with you in this frail human flesh is almost over. She has done a good work for me. She is living out what a true disciple must be displaying. Matthew 6 says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Ironically, later on in that passage, what does Jesus say? No man can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one, love the other, despise the one, hold to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Now here it is in a story for us. Matthew 13 talks about the the man who sells everything he has to get the treasure that he found in a field. The man who finds this pearl of great price and and he sells everything he has just to get that one pearl. That's the commitment of a true disciple for the kingdom of God. Means everything else pales in comparison. There's no way to qualify or quantify his worth. There's no way to calculate the cost of, of his love for us. There's no way to put the heart in a scale and say, this is how much affection is worthy of God and no more. He's always worthy of more. Jesus is inexpressibly wonderful and Mary expresses that in worship. Jesus says, Judas, leave her alone. She has done a good work for me. But not only that, he addresses Judas's statement. And again, you see the compassion of Christ here. He gives Judas the benefit of the doubt. Okay, Judas, you want to give to the poor? Give to the poor. That is a wonderful thing for you to do. Do it as often as you can, he says in this passage. Whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But he makes a statement that might seem contradictory. He says, you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. He told the rich man, the the, the rich young ruler, what? Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Is this a contradiction? Absolutely not. Because the same issue with the rich young ruler is the same issue with Judas. Are you going to be totally and completely devoted to me? Are you willing to abandon everything? If you really care for the poor, Judas, as indeed you should, as I do, Christ would say, you now have the rest of your life to serve them. And nothing that Mary is doing with her alabaster flask is going to stop you from serving the poor. But Judas... I know you. (laughs) You don't love the poor. You don't love me. You love money. You say, why am I... Why did I say earlier that Judas is paving the way for his own suicide? Listen to what Paul said to young Timothy. 1 Timothy 6. We brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out. But if we have food and clothing, let us be content. But those who desire to be rich 
Those who I, where money is an, is an idolatry fall into temptation. And then they fall into a trap, a snare, and in many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving, this desire, that many, listen, many have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I cannot read that passage without thinking about Judas Iscariot. This is who is being personified right here. Many have wandered away from the faith. Why? Because they poured out their love recklessly for money, for stuff. It's not wrong to have stuff. It's not wrong to have money. It is wrong when your stuff and your money has you. See the difference? Leave her alone. You have the poor with you, Judas. You can serve them anytime you wish. But you don't always have me. There's some implications there that we could run to. Obviously, Jesus is talking about his physical body. He's not going to be here much longer. He's going to die, then resurrect and ascend. But he knows what's going to happen to Judas. The clock is ticking a lot faster for Judas than it is for any other disciple at this point. Judas has days to repent. Not weeks, not years. Maybe maybe things will turn around when he gets to be 60 or 70 and then he'll come back and repent and remember who Jesus was and remember all the teaching. No, he doesn't have that much time. The clock is ticking, Judas. You don't always have me. You are about to give yourself over to every kind of evil. You are wandering away from the faith. You are piercing yourself, Judas. You don't love me. You love money. See, the love of money, the desire to be rich, blinds us to Christ's worth. Where we elevate dollars and cents, metal and paper, over the worth and value of Jesus. What could be more valuable than Jesus Christ? Leave her alone, Judas. You can't serve two masters. You are, you've chosen to serve mammon. You've chosen to serve money. You can't comprehend what Mary is doing. Leave her alone. And then he makes another statement. She's anointing me for my burial. Remember, Christ's death has been foretold. The cost of discipleship has been foretold. Mary is thrilled with Jesus as He's the resurrection, the life. She, but she's been listening to Jesus. She knows what's coming. And she is anointing Jesus in advance for what she knows is going to take place. And Jesus is saying that He wants her to have the same commitment to Him even when she knows that he's dead for those three days. Leave her alone, Judas. She is anointing me for my burial. She's in tune to what my mission's been about. Why aren't you? And then there's a statement about the legacy. 
in contrast to Judas's legacy of betrayal and greed, Mary's legacy of devotion to Christ will be reflected when the gospel is proclaimed. Judas has a legacy. Mary has a legacy. This love being poured out, isn't it just like what Jesus is about to do, being broken and spilled out for us? See, her story is still being told. We're telling it today. But it's also told when the gospel is proclaimed, when Jesus' blood is being spilled out for, for our sin, for our redemption. The gospel is being portrayed in what she's doing. Throughout the world, this woman's deed, if not her name, cannot ever be forgotten because she sees that Jesus' death is the gospel. For sake of time, here's the, here's the conclusion. What was motivating Judas and Mary? Gain. Both of them wanted gain. They both perceived what the treasure was and they believed it would make them happy. For Mary, it was the great pearl of great price, Jesus Christ Himself. For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. And all of us, every last one of us in this room, we pour out our time, our love, our money, our energy, our devotion for what we treasure most. To follow Jesus means that we choose to lose what this world sees as gain, to gain what we cannot lose in this world or the next. It means hating our life in this world, foregoing worldly gain to have eternal gain. Here's the point. When we seek the kingdom first, everything we need will be provided. Isn't that good news? We do not need to fear giving lavishly to Jesus. We do not fear losing what the world can never steal from us. God will provide all that we need because He is all that we need. Like Mary pouring out her perfume, a life of sacrificial love for Jesus shows how precious He really is. The real waste the real squandering, the real waste here is gaining the world and losing your soul. One more quote for us. Jesus has no desire to trick you into following Him today. He's utterly upfront with the cost. In fact, He urges you to count it dearly. It is costly but worth it. We renounce all things of this life because we've found a treasure that is infinitely more valuable than everything we could possess in this world. We are set free from wasting our lives in sin to invest our lives in the glory of God. Let your affections for Jesus this week be lavish. Find your satisfaction not in the dollar, not in the paycheck you're going to get this week, but in the riches of His grace. Remember who your Messiah is. Give what is due Him. Seek His kingdom first and pour out your love and extravagant devotion to Him. Let's pray.